0: Welcome to this late hour, a look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I hope you've been having an enjoyable summer so far and that it's been cool where you are. Where I'm at, I've definitely been seeing some really hot days. In fact, we had... One 12-hour period of a rolling blackout, and we were very thankful here at our home to have a small generator to keep our freezer and refrigerator running. Uh, today, we're going to be going back to our—I'm um, going to be going back to my discussion with Andrew Jones and moving on from the Jerupiner site and talking about what I believe and what he is convinced of, also, and many others in the Christian community, of talking about the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia there are some fascinating elements and bits of evidence that are still preserved there in the desert that are absolutely breathtaking. And it is gonna be my joy to to speak with Andrew about that today and to get into some of the details of what exactly is out there and why uh, it supports it being the true uh, historical Mount Sinai. Before we get into that, I do want to put out a word of warning to the This Late Hour community. If you've been paying attention at all to what's going on in the world, uh, I think we are headed for some pretty serious times ahead. I know many of us have been just desperate to get back to normal, to see life uh, lighten up and just to get some refreshment and some joy, And, and I certainly hope you're getting that this summer. But you need to be aware that there is a major food shortage coming. Okay, this is famine levels of food shortage that is coming. And all you gotta do is a quick Google search if you've not heard about this. But it's starting to be reported even in the major news outlets. And I mean, we've had, I think last year we had a total of maybe 20 or 21, something like that, um, fires involving fruit, food processing plants or you know food distribution centers. This year so far, I think we're at over 100 now. Make of that what you will, but that is a significant problem especially given the fact we've been losing tens of thousands of chickens and turkeys due to various reasons. There have been cattle, goats, and sheep dropping dead. Uh, A bunch of them in Kentucky. Uh, And then with the supply chain issues on top of uh, a really uh, strong heat, like the rolling blackouts I mentioned earlier, tough times are ahead. And so if you don't have any extra food or water please do get some right away there are all kinds of, of places you can do that you can obviously just you know get some canned goods you can um you know there's places like my patriot supply they're not a a sponsor of the show but it's it's a place i know i've heard of through different circles uh where you can get extra food um please do something uh because uh, I don't think there's any doubt at this point we are going to be seeing some really tough times coming into the latter part of this year. So please, 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 if you have not gotten any extra food or water, make a point to do that. I would also recommend if you have the financial stability to do this to get some kind of a backup generator, even if it's something small that can run you know, a few appliances uh, to keep things running because there's going to be more rolling blackouts, I can promise you. You know, regardless of the reasons of this, um, there are many things, many speculations. Uh, You know, my personal opinion is there's several things afoot. And one of them is that there are globalists at work who are trying to reset the world. And, uh, you know, you have people like Bill Gates buying up, you know, acres and acres of farmland, but not producing anything on it. And then they're making lab-created foods Um, you've got, I mean, these are, and these people are telling you these things out loud. This is not a conspiracy or a secret. Just go to the World Economic Forum. They're talking about all of these things. Pay attention, folks. We've got to be paying attention. These are very difficult times. And I am also quite convinced we may very well be entering into the time of the seven seals of Revelation. Now, I know that's a bold statement, but there's lots of reasons I think that and even just putting aside all of our eschatological theory and sort of, you know, our, you know, view of this or our view of that, just basic observations of of what Revelation 6 talks about is almost identical to what we're seeing right now. So, I would recommend go to the scriptures yourself, read the ch- chapter 6 of Revelation and what talks about the horsemen and the seven seals of Revelation. And I'm going to be doing an episode on this coming up. Uh, you know, to, to dive into this. And I apologize up front that I have not been able to do, uh, you know, an episode every week. Um, Like many of you have likely been experiencing, life's just been very hard, very demanding. There are spiritual forces at work in this world against the Christian community. There is um, a lot of death and destruction that's happening. And I've certainly been affected by that. And I just came to the conclusion I, I could not possibly, uh, continued to produce weekly episodes and decided to take uh, a, a slight reprieve during the summer, still giving you some content, but just slowing it down because it's been challenging, folks. I am i mean, I'm sure many of you can probably relate to this. I'm, I'm worn out. And, uh, you know, I'll probably get into that more at some point in the future, hoping to bring David on and have him kind of interview me as a casual conversation and just talk about life and what's going on. One last thing before the interview I'd like to recommend. Uh, the Christian author John Eldridge has just come out with a book called Resilient. And it is literally a book about how to survive these days we're in, which he is of the conviction, like so many others uh, in the Christian community and Christian leaders, that we are in the last days. And he gives many of the same reasons I've given, and one of them being that we're nearing the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which, frankly, I see as you know the most concrete, um, biblical explanation of, you know, what we're seeing. I mean, you know, Matthew 24 there in uh, 14, I believe, you know, Jesus says, "This this gospel of the kingdom shall go out to every nation and then the end will come. Seems pretty straightforward. And here we are near the fulfillment of that. And what do we see going on in the world? Global chaos and chaos that very closely lines up to what we read in Revelation. So please be awake and alert and look at these things. Certainly, there's there's a chance I'm wrong. I really don't think so at this point. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one saying these things. Just keep an open hand, an open mind, and be prayerful and alert, friends, as we're in these desperate times. Because I can promise you, as much as I would love, I would love to be back to some form of quote-unquote normal. I would, but really, our hope needs to be in the return of Jesus at this point. Our hope put being put in anything else is not going to satisfy Now I'm not saying we shouldn't try and get refreshment while we can. I'm going to try and get away for a short vacation uh, just a, just a weekend with my wife uh, you know we're hoping that will come together but these things are temporary they're 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 not you know where our hope is anchored in they're but a little refreshment along the way uh, and a little bit of Sabbath rest if you will. Because it's needed. These are desperate times. And if you're not feeling it yet, believe me, you will. So um, let me just leave you on this. Stay encouraged. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And please, whatever you do, get extra food and water. Not in a panicked way. We believe the Lord is our provider. And he is good and faithful. But he's also given us wisdom. And he's given us the power of observation. And if you just look around at what's happening, to not be getting prepared for all that is coming would be foolishness. So please don't be foolish, be wise, and be prepared, both in body, in heart, mind, and spirit. So with all that being said, let's now get into my discussion with Andrew Jones concerning Mount Sinai and another one of the great treasures of the faith God has brought forward in these last days. So let's move now to the topic of Mount Sinai. I've been excited to to speak with you about this for some time. So, you know, for, I'd say probably hundreds of years, uh, many have placed Mount Sinai in the South Sinai Peninsula. So I was curious, have you ever been to this proposed site, the the traditional site, if you will, and why do you reject the notion that this is the correct location?
1: Uh, Yes, I have been to the uh, traditional Mount Sinai site Uh, a number of times doing research and filming and then i obviously lead uh tours out there um so i think my last trip there was um we went twice in march we were filming for uh, tim mahoney out there and then i had a tour group Uh, we visited the site um so it's it's quite an involved topic (laughs) uh to why one site i believe is Mount sign over another site um but I, I just up front, I can say that uh, there are not just one Mount Sinai being proposed out there. There's probably a dozen or so of these uh, mountains. And the reason is because the traditional site does not fit the biblical account. Um, so that's why you have other people, scholars and lay people alike, who are looking for a better candidate that would fit the biblical narrative of where Mount Sinai is. Um, you know, this idea that the traditional site is the mountain of Moses The monastery was built there in the 6th century A.D. at the base of the mountain. And then um, all the way back to the 4th century, you do have an Italian pilgrim who came through the area and she wrote about um, the site um, being Mount Sinai. But before that, there's not much evidence um, for this mountain being chosen as the true Mount Sinai. Some people say there are Jewish or Nabataean uh, pilgrimages being made around 100 A.D., but it's speculation, you know, they found some inscriptions, but it doesn't prove that this was because these people were making a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. Um, and so again, you have other mountains being proposed. Now, when I was there, the first thing you'll notice is this there is a valley at the base of this mountain. But the reason why a lot of people reject this site as being Mount Sinai, it's is because it's a very small valley or plain. And if you read the biblical account, you have to account for one to two million Israelites camping there along with their, uh, you know, animals, their flocks and herds. And so uh, that's one big issue about this site. Uh, the next thing is, like, where do they get the water from when they were there? Uh, you know, modern times, they have wells drilled there, uh, but there's no stream or, or, or water that's easily uh, um, accessible um, for that many people at the base here. Um, and so um, I believe that um, if you were to look elsewhere, I think the biblical account is quite clear that Mount Sinai had to be near or in ancient Midian. And now almost all scholars agree that the Midianites, who were distant relatives of the Israelites, you know, they were descendants of Ketorah, who was Abraham's third wife. You know, they inhabited the land just east of the Gulf of Aqaba in the area that's known today as modern Saudi Arabia in the northwest corner. So in Exodus chapter 2, we see where Moses flees the uh, land of Egypt because he killed one of the Egyptians, and he ends up living in Midian and meets Jethro's daughters, marries one of them, and for the next 40 years, he is taking care of Jethro's flocks and herds of sheep. And so during one of those um, days where he's taking the sheep out to graze, it says in chapter three that he takes them to the mountain of God, you know Mount Sinai, and that's where he sees the burning bush. If you look at a map where Midian is located, you'll see that it is on this eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And then if you look where the traditional Mount Sinai is located, it's on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, on the western side, way down in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And there's no reason for Moses to make that Type of journey with the sheep where he would go from Northwest Saudi Arabia and the land of Midian all the way to the Sinai Peninsula to the, this traditional Jebel Musa or mountain of Moses that you have the monastery and all these pilgrims going to today. Um, in fact, um, you know if you read the old explorer's account, those who came into Saudi Arabia and saw the Bedouins living there uh, a couple hundred years ago, for example, they write that the Bedouins, they do this migration with their sheep, where they go from a lower elevation to a higher elevation based on the season and the temperature. So in the springtime before it got hot before it gets hot, they would take their sheep up into the mountains, and then, in the winter time before it gets too cold up there, they would bring up the sheep back down into the valleys and plains and This is probably what Moses was doing with Jethro's sheep; he was not doing a long migration from Northwest Arabia and the land of Midian all the way to some random mountain in the arid area of, you know, the Sinai Peninsula. No, he was just doing this migration from the valleys up into the mountains. And up in the mountains, that's where he came to Mount Sinai and saw the burning bush. And so if you look at this area of northwest Saudi Arabia, it's full of um, activity. You see archaeological sites showing human occupation going way back. um, You see evidence of the Midianites there, Uh, while the southern Sinai Peninsula is... Uh, void of a lot of activity. Mainly, what you find there is mining activity by the ancient Egyptians where they had their mines for turquoise and copper. But otherwise, Northwest Saudi Arabia had a civilization there. You know, they had the Midianites living. Um, the Bible places Moses there with Jethro's sheep. And again, there's no reason for him to take the sheep all the way down to this traditional Mount Sinai site far away.
0: So, was the Sinai Peninsula named Sinai because of the biblical story, and that's where people placed Moses, or was this always was it always named Sinai? Do you know? Yeah, no, the Sinai Peninsula. It's kind of like what came first.
1: <laughs> um, so, yeah, the reason why they call it the Sinai Peninsula is because of the traditional Mount Sinai site. Um, and it, it was, in the biblical times, this was not called Sinai Peninsula. That's a, a more recent name given to it.
0: Do you know what it was called back in? No, I mean,
1: uh, yeah. So when you look at like the geography, um, you do have a region that they would call Shur uh, between Egypt itself and the land of Israel and going over into Jordan. But, uh, you know, not every little desert or every section had a name given to it. Like in modern times, the whole peninsula is called the Sinai Peninsula because of Mount Sinai. But in ancient times, um you know there 's not a one name given to the whole area uh now in the Romans time, they called some of this um Arabia, and so there 's sections of Arabia that crossed over into the Sinai Peninsula while today uh Arabia itself is its own peninsula and it, it has different countries there like Saudi Arabia and Oman and yemen um so but back then uh no there 's not one name given uh to that area now some people have said that uh, the wilderness of sure would have included some of the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but again, like, you know, today we have these nice maps of everything. Uh, back then we have the scattered text of different areas, but no um, definite boundaries given unlike the promised land. When God described to Moses, like where the promised land would be, he gives very definite boundaries explaining how the borders would go for the 10 tribes, the 12 tribes. But um for things like, you know, the area, this desert wilderness area that we call the Sinai Peninsula, uh, there's not a, a clear name given for that.
0: Uh, speaking of the mountain that we would consider to be Mount Sinai over in Arabia, Jabal al-Lawz, it does have an interesting history. What can you tell us about that history, and, and what do the Saudi locals there have to say about the location?
1: Yeah, well, so in Northwest Arabia in general, Um, It has been looked at as a possible location for Mount Sinai since the 1800s by some people. Uh, We had some British explorers go down there. And um, I think there was even a Czech uh, explorer, uh, Musil, who went down there in 1910 or so. Um, Anyways, these guys, you know, they had placed Mount Sinai somewhere in the land of Midian. Um, But it was Ron Wyatt who in 1984 and 1985, who actually went to the Jebel el mountain range and found a particular peak that had all this interesting um, things at the base of it, um, from petroglyphs to um, an archaeological site that looked like um, animal corrals that could have been used for the altar of Moses, to even meeting a local Bedouin there who told them, Hina Jabal Musa in Arabic, which means in English, here's the mountain of Moses. And so now this was before there were any YouTube videos or books about the site written. So why did this local go up to Ron and say, Hina Jabal Musa in 1984, and so you know they, there's obviously a tradition that this was uh, uh, Mount Sinai by locals uh, versus what was being promoted as the real Mount Sinai in um, the land of Egypt, where all the pilgrims go today. Um, so th- there's a, a separate tradition that this is the real Mount Sinai here in Saudi Arabia instead of in Egypt.
0: What more can you tell us about Ron Wyatt's interactions at the location Jabal al-Loss?
1: Well, you know, he started his research in the 1970s, um, and he first was looking for the Red Sea Crossing. He did not believe that the, uh, the marshy lakes at the tip of the Gulf of Suez, that's on that eastern side of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, the Nile Delta, he didn't believe that that was the correct location. From reading Josephus and other accounts, um, he believed that they had to have left Egypt and come to a mountainous area where they would be entrapped on a beach that could hold them. And so he was looking all over, and he came across the Nueva Beach area. Um, that's The modern name is Nueva, and that's on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. And he believed that this fits the true Red Sea crossing. And so if that is the true Red Sea crossing, that would mean that Mount Sinai was not in the Sinai Peninsula, but in... Northwest Saudi Arabia, because that is per the biblical account, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and then they came to Mount Sinai. And so if the Red Sea crossing happened at Nueva on the Gulf of Aqaba, that would put Mount Sinai in the land of Midian and Northwest Saudi Arabia. Um, so he tried many years to enter the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but you know, back then from the 1970s until most recently, there were no tourist visas allowed. Um, and so he finally decided that he could just risk it with him and his two sons crossing over And sneaking back into Jordan. So that's what they did in 1984. Sadly, though, they were caught when they were trying to return back to Jordan, and they ended up being in prison for over 70 days in Arabia, thanks to uh, a so-called friend who was one of the few people who knew about the trip and had informed the Saudis of it and falsely accused Ron of being an Israeli spy. Um, But he was able to get out um, he was in the news because of this um, uh, episode um, and uh, a local Saudi heard about the news story and the Saudi who lived in the, the main town in that area called Tabuk, um, he invited Ron to come back the next year in March 1985, illegally, and this time with a legal visa. And so Ron and one of his new friends who was helping on the Nozark Ark research, uh, Dave Fazzled, they both were invited by the Saudi to come visit Jabba Allah's. It was on this trip that they discovered these uh, 18-foot diameter, double-walled stone circles at the base that looked like wells. They also um, investigate thoroughly the, the the altar Moses site with the animal corrals beside it. And they found the cow petroglyphs in front of the mountain carved on these large boulders, and they got gold readings around it. And so all of this happened on the 1985 trip. Um, but when the Saudis offered to Ron to stay and excavate with them, the site Ron declined because he, you know, he had some meetings in Ankara. He told them about the Noah's Ark project, which he thought at that time was more important to, to deal with. Um, and so because he had turned down the Saudis, they took all their footage sadly and banned them from coming back to Saudi Arabia. And so that was Ron's uh last trip to Saudi Arabia. He made two trips there to the mountain, but uh, sadly didn't come out with any evidence.
0: Well, in the story of this archaeological find often overlooked are Jim and Penny Caldwell, who made many trips out to the mountain before it was open to tourists like it is today. What can you tell us about their story? Yeah. So I've met
1: Jim and Penny um, a couple of years ago. We were both on the Michael Rood show and then they invited me to their house to see um, some of their artifacts and hear more about their story. And of course I've seen them on YouTube and and I have some of their videos, uh, really nice people uh, so they were Americans who were working in Saudi Arabia in the early 1990s um, in the oil industry. And it was through a miracle that they heard about Mount Sinai being at Jabal al They happened to be out of the country because of a visa issue. They had to leave Saudi Arabia for a month and then come back in. Well, during that uh, time, they decided to tour around Egypt and they were driving. So they drove out of Saudi into Jordan and down into Egypt. They were um, driving around and they came to Nueva on their They are heading back to Saudi Arabia after a month-long trip. And they get to Nueva and they, uh, they happened to stay at the exact same hotel that Ron was in. And Ron had just left a couple of days before. <laughs> and on Ron's side of the story, he had found out that the hotel owner was interested in helping him Document this mountain in Saudi Arabia because you know Ron never had any photographs or videos, so this guy claimed that he could enter Saudi on his Hajj visa because as a Muslim he could go at least once in his lifetime to Mecca and then after his visit to Mecca, this guy claimed he could swing by Mount Sinai and document this mountain for Ron and so Ron uh, he wanted money, of course, and so anyways, Ron um, uh, and his wife drew a map for this hotel owner and gave him the map how to get to the mountain. Um, and so after they had left, this guy uh, Jim and Penny Caldwell and their two kids come through, stay at the same hotel. And this hotel owner, when he finds out that they're living in Saudi Arabia and um, they're tour—I mean, they're, they're touring Egypt—they have video cameras, you know—they they, so they, they they know how to use cameras and all that. Uh, he, put, I think the story goes, like he puts them up in like the best room in the hotel, and is so excited to see them and. Um, and, he, and he keeps talking about a map, and he shows them this map of a mountain that he said this American had just given him to uh, Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. And so he gives uh, them the map so that they could go document it. Now, he didn't tell <laughs> tell the Caldwells that he was going to get paid for it, but uh, you know, the Caldwells offered to go check this out because they you know, they say they visited the, the – um, traditional site themselves like everyone else does when you're in Egypt. And, um, you know, they they realize that this could not fit the biblical account. It's a tourist site. And so when they hear about this other site, they they get interested, you know, because they're living in Saudi Arabia. And so they go and investigate it on their way home. Now they worked on the uh, eastern side of Saudi Arabia on the Persian Gulf side. But on their way home, uh, they swing by the mountain and take uh, video and photographs. And then when they get to uh their home, they were able to have their sister contact Ron Wyatt. When this was going on, when their sister was trying to contact Ron, that very same day, Ron was trying, you know, Ron was back in America and he was trying to wire, uh, I think it was a couple thousand dollars or something, but he was trying to wire more money to the Egyptian hotel owner who claimed he needed some more money to, you know, get to Saudi Arabia. (laughs) But for whatever reason, (laughs) that day, the uh they, they did everything correctly according to their story. and uh, but the, the bank called and said, Hey, the money's not going through. Can you recheck the bank account number for the Egyptian? And so the international wire was being held up. Well, before the money could have could go through and anything could have been fixed, you know, obviously God was holding up that money because as soon as they got off the phone with the bank, they get a phone call from Jim's sister. Now, then of course they don't know who she is. She, all she said is hey, is this Ron Wyatt? Uh, And my brother says he has something for you. He lives in Saudi Arabia. So Ron calls his brother. He explains that, hey, we just came back from the mountain you said is Mount Sinai. We have all this video and photographs. We want to give it to you. And so the the the, the two or $3,000 that they were going to wire the Egyptian um, hotel owner, they used that for Ron's ticket. And they met, um, I I think they went to Dubai. But anyways, Ron met them um, at a hotel um, just outside of Saudi Arabia there. And um, they were able to give Ron, you know, all of this, and then Ron actually recorded a video with them in the hotel room, explaining their side of the story and how they, uh, you know, met the hotel owner. And, you know, they were they didn't believe that Mount Sinai was in a, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, so it obviously was God who brought them in because they were living there. They were able to go multiple times on their vacation and explore uh, Northwest Arabia in the land of Midian with their, uh, you know, two young kids. They had quite a family adventure. And it was them who found the uh, the split rock on the western side of the mountain range.
0: Yes, if I recall, too, it was rather risky uh, for them to be continually going in and out of there because, uh, you know, there was a time where it wasn't so easy to get in to visit the mountain.
1: Yes, um, they they did tell Ron one condition was that he could not show their faces. I remember the old newsletters in the 1990s you'd see uh, like if if they were in a video or a a photograph their faces were blurred or their whole body was blurred so that people wouldn't know who they were Uh, and you know it was risky to go in there because at that time it was forbidden the sites were fenced off kept uh, a tourist was kept away or those who foreigners who lived in the kingdom and worked there were not allowed to come visit but thankfully they were able to go there they climbed the mountain Um, A number of times they were able to even climb Jebel Allah's, which is the highest peak in the range. Um, And then of course they explore it all over, including the Western side. And that's when they discovered like
0: the split rock. Now You had mentioned Tim Mahoney earlier. Now he's obviously done um, several films regarding the historicity of the Exodus, including films on Moses writing the Torah, the Red Sea crossing and so on. Now his next film, if I'm not mistaken, is set to release this year, which he's been kind of, the, his whole sort of journey has been wanting to get to this moment, which is about Mount Sinai. So now you had mentioned doing some filming for him. What can you tell us about the film and your involvement?
1: Ah, yeah. So uh, Tim, I first met him in I believe it was 2017 um, or early 18. Um, we were communicating back and forth at the end of 2016 about the video because he found out we were in we were going in and out of Saudi Arabia on our business visas. And that we had, you know, new footage, uh, 4K footage, drone video of all the sites, which was uh, unheard of. (laughs) And so he uh, licensed uh, almost all of our footage to use in his different films. Um, Now, he's been on quite a journey himself to get to this point to, you know, present Mount Sinai. And so I believe he'll be doing a a two-part series, just like what he did for the Red Sea Crossing, because there's so much information. And, you know, he'll look at the different proposed Mount Sinai sites. Including the one that Ron White discovered, and he uh, he will be using a lot of our footage. I don't, you know, I'm not part of the editing team, so I don't know what the percentage is, but um, I do know he's licensed a bunch of our, our footage from the different trips over there. He was there, by the way, in 2003 with the Caldwells uh, and Dr. Glenn Fritz and Dr. Leonard Moeller. But sadly, all his footage was confiscated when they left uh, the country at the airport. They the Saudis took all their footage, so he came away empty-handed. So he was happy to uh, hear about our adventures over there. And we were happy to provide our footage to help his project out.
0: Well, let's kind of narrow in on the mountain itself. There are many attributes of it uh, and the surrounding area that seem to very closely align with the biblical narrative. So what would you consider to be some of the strongest points of evidence for this being the authentic site, the true mountain of God?
1: Well, we can quickly go over some of the different points that would uh, point to uh, this being Mount Sinai. Uh, Number one, um, again, we're going back to uh, the Red Sea crossing and how Ron first originally uh, um, started looking to Northwest Arabia. It was because he believed he had found the Red Sea crossing that was on the Gulf of Aqaba. So we believe that if you look at the biblical account, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, um, which is where Solomon's ships were based later on, um, it says in 1 Kings that his ships were on the Red Sea. Um, So this is a well, you know, his ships were in a well-known area on the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, probably near modern um, Aqaba itself, the city itself. Um, And so uh, this places the the Gulf of Aqaba as being part of the Red Sea name uh, and probably the Red Sea that the Israelites crossed based on, you know, that's another topic, but based on the evidence for where the Red Sea crossing is. Um, So that would place Mount Sinai east of the Gohalaqba in Northwest Arabia. So that's the first point uh, is that it is uh, east of the Red Sea. Uh, the second point, I think is we give, kind of mentioned this, but it, it is nearer in Midian. And so when you look at how Moses uh, fled Egypt, ended up with the flocks of Jethro, he didn't take a long journey outside of Midian, way down to the southern Sinai Peninsula to the traditional site. Um, He was near Jethro's home with these sheep and he's doing just what the Bedouins do today. He took the sheep up into the mountains and that's when he saw the burning bush um, in the springtime. And so this places Mount Sinai within the borders or just near uh, the land of Midian for him to do that with the sheep. Uh, Another uh, point um, is that uh, you have church historians, Eusebius and St. Jerome, they in their writings associate Mount Sinai with Midian and Arabia Felix. And Arabia Felix is the larger territory of Arabia covering the uh, Arabian Peninsula, you know, down into Yemen. And so um, this would fit, obviously, Jabal Allah's, which is in northwest Saudi Arabia, versus the Sinai Peninsula, which is not considered part of Arabia Felix. Another point is uh, the historians like Josephus and uh, Philo, they mentioned that uh, the region's tallest peak was Mount Sinai. Um, and here you have Jebel Alaz, which is the tallest mountain in northwest Arabia, being associated by locals as being the mountain of Moses. So that whole mountain range could possibly be dis- described as the mountain of Moses and the different peaks there. And then if you actually look at the topography for the actual mountain, um, it, it fits the biblical account because the Bible says they had a large Um, uh, It had a large enough area for the 600,000 men, not counting women and children, and their flocks and herds to camp. And when you go there, the topography fits exactly. It's easily accessible through the different valleys to go into this uh, plain that's in the southern and eastern side of this mountain. And the plain is huge. I mean, there are literally probably, uh, depending on how you measure the acreage, it can range from 10,000 acres to more. Uh, in that area. And then now if you look at the actual chronology of the Exodus account, you know, some people say Mount Sinai is uh, very close to the land of Egypt, a three-day journey. Can they misinterpret uh, Exodus where Pharaoh and Moses are negotiating about leaving Egypt? And Moses says, let us take a three-day journey out into the wilderness to worship. Uh, So they take that to mean that, oh, well, that has to be where Mount Sinai is. But if you look at the actual Exodus journey itself, uh, if you read numbers thirty three verse three Exodus chapter nineteen verse one and two, you realize that it was in the third month that the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and they left you know right on Passover the fifteenth day of the first month, and so you have this you know forty five day to sixty day journey uh between the first and second uh, between the first and third month for them to get to Mount Sinai, and so that shows that Mount Sinai could not be very close to the borders this uh, two-month journey that they took uh, fits with Northwest Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then if you look at the New Testament, you see Paul, he talks about Sinai being in Arabia, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 25. Now, some people could, would say, well, during the time of Paul, that Arabia included uh, you know, parts of the Sinai Peninsula. That can be true, but it definitely included Northwest Saudi Arabia. So just one of the pieces of the puzzle uh point number eight I'd like to make is that local tradition, as we mentioned, um has uh Jebel Musa right there, but it also has different key events happening from the Exodus uh happening there in Northwest Saudi Arabia. You have people, you know, locals will come up to you and tell you as a tourist, hey, did you go see that oasis, you know, that's right around the corner. This is where you know the Israelites are at or where Moses took Jethro's sheep. It's really interesting hearing them uh, you know, they have the little twist uh, on the story. Like um, if you go to this wadi called Wadi Taizim, and this is uh, one of the major oasis in in Midian. There, they say that God split the, the mountain. You know, they kind have a twist on the story. They say that God miraculously opened up the mountain and created a way for the Israelites to get to the oasis um, through this canyon. And so that's, uh, I don't know if that's their split rock story, but they have the mountain splitting in two. And they believe the Jews came up through that way um and so uh then you have of course the evidence of um Jethro's sheep uh going to Mount Sinai nearby again, not going all the way to the Sinai peninsula, and finally, I like to say that uh if you look at the actual mountain that Ron White investigated, the actual peak in the Jebel Law's mountain range. The peaks there are called Jebel Makla. That's, that's the modern name that's given to the set of peaks right there. And at the base, you'll find different things that fit the biblical account for what you could find on Mount Sinai. Uh, number one, uh, it talks about that there must be a cave that Elijah flees to. So remember the story of Elijah fleeing Jezebel in First Kings chapter nineteen, it says he went to Horeb and stayed in a cave, and that's where he heard the you know, still small voice of God speaking to him. And so, this mountain has a cave on the eastern side; it's the only uh, main big cave there on the on that actual mountain. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy nine twenty one and Exodus thirty two twenty, it talks about a stream or the availability of water, the stream or brook that came down from the mountain, so that obviously gave water to the Israelites. But it, you know, in the golden calf incident, Moses grinds up the gold from the the cow idol and sprinkles the powder in the water, and it says he made the Israelites drink it. So there must have been enough water coming out of the mountain that uh, gave them uh, uh, that the one, to two million people could drink it. And so you got to find evidence that there was an ancient stream there or a, a brook, and you do see that. Um, and finally, uh, the Israelites had have been able to walk from their encampment to the mountain. You know, some people, they propose the Mount Sinai site, but then the the plain where the Israelites are encamped is far away because the geography doesn't fit the biblical account, so that's they have to make up stuff. But when you look at this site, the plain that uh, is around the mountain, it goes right to the base of the mountain. And so from their tents, they could walk out and walk to the base, as it says in Exodus chapter 19. And here the Ten Commandments being given by God. Uh, oh, I do have one, uh, two more points actually here. Uh, one is that the mountain has to be a, um, a mountain where Moses can climb up and down a few times a day. You find that in Exodus chapter nineteen that when they arrive there, Moses immediately goes up to talk to God. He comes down and then goes up again. And so you can't have like a Mount Everest type mountain or, or a hard climb where you can't go up and down uh, part way on the mountain for moses to go talk to god uh and this fits this mountain um we've done the climb uh it is a you know uh it's not like a a walk in the park but you can definitely climb up and down the mountain a couple times in a day especially if you're just going like halfway up where there's this plateau where the possible 70 elders ate with god where it mentions that in exodus chapter uh i believe uh 34 talks about the uh, 70 elders eating on mount sinai with god right um yeah. And then the final point i like to make is the cow petroglyphs. You do see that uh, area just at the base. Again, it's like a court case. You have all these different pieces of a puzzle and you know, this happens to be cow petroglyphs there, all, all these this huge area with these boulders. And that fits exactly when you look at the biblical account of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. It's during that incident that they build this this cow goddess or God and they're in front of Mount Sinai wishing it as Moses is up on the mountain, Joshua. So, you know, all these pieces fit and point to this, the location for where God gave the law.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Andrew Jones regarding the real Mount Sinai. There will be more of our conversation that will release in two weeks from now where we will finish up our discussion talking about some of the other remarkable findings uh, around the mountain as well as some of the unique features of the mountain itself. I'm going to link his website and some of his videos in the show notes. So please uh, check those out because really it's hard to sum up just how amazing these locations are if you haven't seen them with your own eyes so I highly recommend following those links if you're enjoying these podcasts please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts if you'd like to support the show please follow the link in the show description where for five dollars a month you can get monthly long-form bonus episodes if you have questions or comments please send me an email at this late hour podcast at gmail.com or visit our twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page this late hour Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Join me next week for the follow-up to this interview as we finish out our discussion on the real Mount Sinai. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.